welcome to episode 360 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views that we're going to express here are probably the views of nobody we know, nobody we represent, nobody, no institution we serve at, none of our family members, uh, none of our pets, and maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Our interview is going to be fun with Kevin Roos, who's, I think he's a millennial technology columnist for the New York Times and has written a book that I think is kind of a millennial view of AI, but we'll let him correct me. It's called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. But first, we've got great news roundup featuring Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology policy at Georgetown Law and is also doing technology policy at Brookings. We've got Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. We've got Maury Schenk, London-based lawyer and technologist. And of course, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, back from the wilds of New Hampshire and hours of bushwhacking because we lost the trail and having added the lunch of despair to our family's uh, list of bizarre things that happened to them when they were hiking with their grandfather. So uh, why don't we start with this? I, I could have talked about this last week if I'd been here, but I really feel like I should. Dan Kaminsky was a terrific internet security researcher and a terrific guy, and he died of complications of diabetes at 42. Dimitri, did you know Dan? Yeah, I did. I've known him going back 12, 13 years, and what strikes me, obviously a very brilliant guy, but more than that, just a gentlest soul, um, always happy to help, always reaching out to people when they're in trouble or needed help. And I, I think the internet, the, the, the Twitter sphere is full of people sharing their stories about him. And most of them are not about his discovery of the DNS hack or the Sony rootkit. It's really about what a wonderful individual he was in every respect and represented really the best of what the cybersecurity community can, can be and is. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. I, I worked with him on a public policy issue where we were kind of lobbying over DNSSEC and what we thought was a an effort by copyright forces to make DNSSEC unworkable. And I'm guessing our political views on almost everything else were completely opposite, but uh, it was so much fun. He had such a flexible and creative mind that uh, I would say something and he would say, well, yeah, actually that is surprisingly true, but here's how you should say it to, to, to make it more true and more appropriate. And he, he was a great collaborator. And, and an amazing communicator. I mean, one of the talents that he had was taking something that's incredibly complex and technical and digesting it in a way that the general public could understand. And we need more people like that in our industry. Yeah. So I, I, that's not me. I'm, I've got a little bit of a meaner streak than he ever had. So I'm going to make it my tribute to Dan to see what I can do to screw up Jacob Applebaum's just disgusting uh, a FOIA request for Dan Kaminsky's FBI records, which he filed the day after uh, Dan's obituary, uh, uh, and which is only 
acceptable after somebody has died. I'm going to see if there isn't some legal problem with uh, uh, what Applebaum has done. Applebaum, of course, is the notorious fellow kicked out of the tour project for being a sex predator and and just a generally loathsome individual. So that's my non-nice guy tribute to Dan Kaminsky. All right. The EU is charging Apple as we speak, I think, with anti-competitive behavior for how it runs the App Store. Maury, what is exactly the charge that Apple faces? So DG Competition, headed by Margaretha Vestager, sent in a statement of objections on Friday to Apple. They have 12 weeks to respond. They've charged two aspects of the App Store, the mandatory use of in-app purchases to go through Apple's, subject to Apple's 30% charge, and forbidding developers from advertising options for purchasing outside the App Store. And they've charged that under, as an abuse of a dominant position under Article 102 of the Treaty on the European Union. And there's a lot of authority in Europe to charge violations there. I think it's interesting that it's happening today, I believe, the trial between Epic and Apple and Epic Games is starting in Oakland, but the U.S. law is not nearly as aggressive on this kind of behavior. So Apple stands a much better chance in the U.S. than in, in Europe. Yeah, this is abuse of a dominant position. It's pretty clear, Apple, you can acquire a dominant position by good faith behavior, and that would be argu Apple's argument, and it might have uh, impact in the U.S., but in Europe, you can acquire it innocently, but if you use it in a way that has anti-competitive consequences, then you're uh, going down. And I, I think it's hard to see how Apple survives this charge. Uh, they have a dominant position and they're making money hand over fist with these 30% fees. They bear no relationship to the cost. So it does seem like the EU is going to be able to make this charge stick. Mark, what do you think? So I don't know, this case reminds me a little bit of a U.S. case, the Amex case, where Amex argued that they needed a no-steering rule to, to prevent free riding and to balance the interests of cardholders and merchants. And that's sort of what Apple's going to be arguing, that they can't allow this kind of uh, free riding, otherwise they won't have a payment system that's, I mean, a, a platform that's worth preserving. But you don't know, you think yeah. that the Amex case was persuasive in part because in the background were two really big companies, MasterCard and uh, Visa, who had much more capability and made much more money than Amex. And so charging Amex with being the abuser of a dominant position was a little weird. It was a little weird. And I do think the dominant position is the key thing. For, for my mind, the real issue here isn't the steering rule or, or what payment system to use. The real issue is price. How much should Apple be allowed to charge for the App Store, given that the app developer customers don't really have much of a choice? I know Vestiger says that's not the issue, but I don't know what else could reasonably be at stake. And if that's the issue, it's really a regulatory issue, not really a, an antitrust issue or a, comp a competition issue. Well, it, it, anything that um, charges abuse of a, of a, a dominant position is just the prelude to regulation. This is one of the things that, that is, a, is problematic with using antitrust laws to deal with Silicon Valley is it, it 
just creates a regulatory structure that doesn't change very easily and is subject to all of the problems with regulate, regulatory structures that we already have, such as capture, uh, lack of uh, flexibility. So at the end of the day, this would just let the EU in the long run say, yeah, 30% is too much. We're going to make you cut it down to 15 or we're going to make you cut it down to 15 for certain uh, uh, companies and others more or you be able to charge a one-time charge. They get to make up those rules, right? Well, and in the EU, it's familiar for regulation and competition law to be intertwined. The whole electronic communications regulatory system is focused on restraints on enterprises that have a dominant position. And then it can get into all kinds of detailed conditions just like this. So yes, the EU, I think, is trying to go exactly where you stated, Stuart. All right. So meanwhile, Governor DeSantis has, a, has a, an alternative regulatory program for Silicon Valley, for especially for social media. He's gotten a bill, and I don't think he's signed it yet, but uh, he's going to, and it's going to pass. It has passed, I think, but it remains unsigned. 7072 is the legislation, and it is the first legislation at the state level that tries to solve some of the problems that people who've been objecting to the control of speech that social media platforms have, have gotten past. And I think it's both creative and has reasonably good prospects in the courts, especially if it gets, as I predict it will, to the Supreme Court. But Mark, I know you, you disagree. So Tell me uh, a little bit more about the bill and then your view of its legal problems. So one thing first, uh, regardless of whether the bill survives a constitutional challenge, you got to hand it to the uh, lobbyists for Disney. They got themselves a special carve out. Yes, that's right. This does not apply. Uh, This this regulates every aspect, all social media that are big enough, unless they actually have a a theme park in Florida, and then it doesn't apply. This is raising the price, I'm sure, of all the other theme parks in uh, Florida, because Google, surely, they could buy one with petty cash. They've just given a way to uh, avoid the effectiveness of the law if if the companies want to take advantage of it. But what the, what the law says is things we've we've heard about before in other contexts. There's a ban on deplatforming candidates that run for election in Florida, an exemption from the content moderation rules that the social media companies have for those uh, candidates. There's a requirement that the uh, the companies enforce their content moderation rules consistently for all users. And then there are a bunch of things that are pretty standard at this point, the disclosure of the content rules, requirements for notices for content moderation actions, appeals processes, transparency reports, and the like. And those ones that I just listed at the end probably don't raise a whole lot of free speech issues. But the other ones do that require the companies to carry or not carry different content. I think there's a case to be made for these things, but to the extent that they say to to private companies, here's the content you have to carry, here's the content you can't carry. I, I do think they're fraught with uh, with constitutional issues. Yeah, I, I see the issue. Well, let's, let's stop just on, on the, the constitutional issue. I agree with you. There's, you can find plenty of constitutional law decisions out of the Supreme Court and elsewhere that would raise questions about this. Uh, practically everything that says 
corporations have First Amendment rights is implicated by this. But there's also not insignificant uh, number of cases that acknowledge that sometimes the First Amendment rights of big companies or people who have a stranglehold on speech ought to yield or at least be moderated because of the impact that that has on everybody else's right to speak. Yeah, and, absolutely uh, right. And, and these provisions are really similar to the equal time and no censorship rules for broadcasters and the access right that they've got for journalistic enterprises in, in the Florida bill uh, looks like the access right that broadcasters have for being carried on cable systems. So if the court wants to reach a favorable decision in on these measures, they could probably find enough justification in the case law to do it. My question is whether they want to do that. Or whether well, Justice Thomas has taken out an ad in the Supreme Court report saying he does. <laughs> he, he sure does. And so it's, it's, it may be more of a jump ball than the kind of tilted playing field that I think it is. But more importantly, I think the Florida law is preempted by Section 230. I mean, Section 230 says that the social media platforms aren't liable for the content of their users, and it says that no cause of action can be brought against them for inconsistent state laws. Well, this is an inconsistent state law that tells the social media companies what they can carry and what they can't carry. Well, let me, let me, let me push back on that. Is. So I see the argument. I think we can agree this is not field preemption. Consistent laws that are consistent with 230 are can be enforced. The law, 230 actually says that. But 230 says that it provides an immunity for actions voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to things that we all agree should be restricted, uh, violent, lewd, lascivious, otherwise objectionable. And what I, I would argue if I were defending DeSantis's bill is I would say, one, we're giving content to good faith. It's not good faith to say we've got secret rules and uh, you violated them. Uh, uh, and to say, and we've decided that uh, your speech is objectionable because it disagrees with the CDC or it disagrees with our woke workforces uh, views uh, is not necessarily otherwise objectionable. You have to read otherwise objectionable without reference to all the other stuff that came before it, which is a pretty narrow set of bad stuff. So I, I, it seems to me that there's, a, there's an argument here that all of this is consistent with a, a proper understanding of 230. I don't think uh, a requirement that says to, to social media companies, you have to carry journalistic enterprises, or you have to carry political candidates, or you can't censor political candidates are consistent with 230. Maybe a requirement to publish your rules would be consistent with 230. But those other ones, which go directly to what companies can and cannot say on their own medium, that probably wouldn't be allowed under Section 230. So maybe part of Section 230 is preempted, even if not all of it is. Well, it will be interesting to see. I would make the argument that it's hard. It's so hard to imagine a political candidate whose speech is obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, and falls into those categories. It may be uh, more appropriate to say, we're just going to say as a category that uh, we don't think that those, that, that those candidates' speech 
is going to be objectionable as 230 understands it. But you know, they, you're right, there's a First Amendment issue. Uh, on the other hand, there's surely a First Amendment interest in the part of voters in hearing from people who are actually uh, running for office and who need to be voted on. And to say that voters can't get that news from the place where they get most of their news now has free speech implications, even if the First Amendment would allow Facebook or YouTube to do that. The Florida law isn't really the end of the story because also last week, U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican from Tennessee, introduced a national content moderation law, which is of interest too. It got some favorable coverage in the conservative press, and it would repeal and replace 230, and it would treat social media companies as common carriers, and it would forbid political censorship, all measures that might have some issues under the First Amendment, but at least is aiming at a national coherent policy and not at a state-level way of regulating the companies. And I think and that's- he's, he's both, picking up on basic, he is definitely picking up on uh, Justice Thomas's ad in the Supreme Court reports. He, he's borrowing heavily from the public utility model. Exactly. And I, I think there's enough agreement in Congress that the social media companies are too powerful and that there's too much illegal and harmful stuff on their systems to, to create a kind of consensus to move forward in some way uh, in this area. I think uh, they have to overcome their antipathy towards each other and some of the rhetoric that they direct towards each other on this issue. But I, I do think there's a commonality of interest and progress might be made. Yep. It, uh, I, of course, I have always thought uh, that uh, Haggerty's bill should be described as the true net neutrality bill to give back to Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter who've been yelling about net neutrality and, and saying, oh my God, if you don't have net neutrality, Verizon might censor you. Uh, a, a, a preposterous notion in light of where we are today. It, it would be fun to, to call that the, the, the net neutrality act, but we're going to hear from, we're going to hear from the FCC on yet another uh, version of net neutrality. I'm sure. Stay tuned for those issues to be raised during that proceeding. <laughs> okay. We are, we're not done with this one because uh, I predict if this bill survives its first, uh, the, if the Florida bill survives its first encounter with the judiciary, 20 other states are going to adopt it, and that will make the, the argument from the Commerce Clause a little harder to make. All right. Uh, Dimitri, uh, Ann Neuberger is quoted in Politic uh, CNN, I think, said this, that, and there were others. What the White House has done so far with respect to Russian cyber attacks is not going to deter more cyber espionage, more cyber attacks. It isn't clear what more is planned. Is this Anne getting herself in trouble by committing Kinsley gaffe, which is when a political actor by mistake tells the truth? Or is there something else going on when she says this? Well, I'm shocked, Stuart, shocked that there's gambling going on in the casino. First of all, cyber activity aside, there's no evidence that sanctions work in general to change states' behavior, unless perhaps if there are such extreme sanctions like what we put on Iran a few years ago to get them into GCPOA. Yeah, South Africa probably uh, buckled under them too. But yeah, I agree with you. They have to really be in extremists for the sanctions to have a big impact. And certainly not of the type that we uh, put on Russia yet again a few weeks ago in response to solar winds and, and a bunch of other things, which sanctioned a few people. Some of them have already been sanctioned for other things. So sanctioning them for the umpteenth time for something else doesn't strike me as extremely effective in terms of sending the message. 
and staying away from sanctions that would really hurt the Russian economy, such as the oil sector, Nord Stream 2 pipeline to Germany, or even the sovereign debt sanctions on secondary debt sales, which would really affect Russia's ability to raise debt on overseas markets. We didn't touch any of those. All of those would be highly escalatory. So maybe they would hit Europe as much as Russia and the administration is trying not to go back and hit Europe upside the head the way the Trump administration did. That potentially too. But at any rate, what we're seeing, of course, is that the sanctions primarily have the domestic effect of making the administration look like they're doing something about Russia and, and in fact got fairly a favorable press from people that really wanted to hammer Russia, but, but are not going to have any effect. And, and, and the fundamental issue that I had with them, as we've talked about before, is it's not clear what type of behavior you want Russia to change. They're not going to stop conducting espionage. And the message I thought from the administration was very muddled about how the SolarWinds espionage was unacceptable because whether it was too broad or hit too many folks in the private sector, it, it was not at all clear that, or use the supply chain vulnerabilities, it was not clear what particularly was so objectionable in, in, in that operation and what we would expect to see going forward from Russia. And I just thought that Anne articulated what everyone already knows, which is that, of course, the Russians are not going to change their behavior. So it's on. It's inexcusable. She told the truth. The truth about uh, what the impact's going to be. Yeah, that's kind of why my sense is that this is just an emperor has no clothes moment. This was as much as they could do, and it wasn't going to change anything. And as you've said in other contexts, it isn't even clear how much of an objection we have to this. We certainly wouldn't announce it as a principle of international law. It's just we wanted to show that uh, the, this administration wanted to show it was not the Trump administration and was willing to do things, uh, m mean things to Russia. Now, the interesting thing is that we still have not uh, responded to the Chinese hacks of exchange servers, which I've argued have been uh, much more reckless and dangerous than anything that the Russians did in SolarWinds. And uh, we're still waiting on attribution of that operation and uh, any response from a sanctions perspective or indictments or what have you. Well, not attributing it makes it a lot easier not to uh, respond to it. Uh, uh, so you kind of wonder whether there's a certain amount of slowdown on that. But what would you do about that? I, frankly, I would think that it would make would have made sense within 48 hours to have taken advantage of every unpatched exchange server in China and left open a bunch of web shells for whoever wanted them. They did that to everybody else in the world. It's a little hard for them to complain if we did it to them. Well, I don't know that they would necessarily care that much about it. And I don't think it sets the right precedent in terms of us falling down to their level. But I do think that we have unique leverage in China against contractors. To the regime. In fact, the only time where I've seen indictments really affect behaviors is when we had indicted in the past contractors to MSS and PLA because a lot of those companies and individuals working for those companies had broader aspirations about business opportunities with the West and being under indictment severely limits your options to explore those paths. So I do think that we have opportunities to make it much more difficult for um, those contractors to operate or, or make them choose. You're either um, a Beltway bandit in Beijing, and you only work with the Chinese government and never again work with anyone in the West, or you decide that the Chinese government is not that lucrative from a potential business investment for you. Yeah, I like that. Beijing 
Beltway Bandit. Uh, they do have plenty of Beltways, too. Uh, it's, so it works. All right. Uh, well, it is relevant to what are they doing that we hate so much. Uh, both the Chinese and the Russians were the subject of, of interesting stories uh, about other things that they're doing more in the nature of information ops than the cyber attacks. Uh, Maury, the Spectator had a long article about China's use of social media to stoke racial tension in the United States. And I think they stumbled into it when they said, don't you dare call this the Wuhan flu or a Wuhan disease. That would be racist. Uh, and it worked remarkably well. Uh, we now have the British variant. We have the South African variant. We have Brazilian variants, but nobody is prepared to say that the, the thing that they're varying from is the Wuhan virus. And having found that it works, they're really milking it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think the game is a lot about what's going on in Xinjiang, in Western China, where there is extensive, well, both the US and Europe are saying extensive human rights violations. I tend to agree with that against the Muslim population there. People are threatening sanctions. China doesn't like that. I don't think China is so much stoking racial tensions as pointing out that we have racial problems in the United States and they're taking to social media to do that. They did it also with Black Lives Matter. So you think it's just irresistible to them they, that this is whether or not it works in the United States, they just can't get enough of it because it's such a direct response to the Xinjiang accusations. Yeah, I think it's more about Xinjiang than anything else to say, you're making us look bad, we make you look bad. Yeah. Okay. So the Russians are doing stuff like this in Eastern Europe, Europe and Firefly had a report on what they call the Ghostwriter Cyber Espionage Group. Uh, Dimitri, how much new did we learn from the FireEye report? Well, the most interesting thing in, about the report is how our adversaries are thinking about information operations. In the U.S., we tend to think in silos. There are people that are doing SIGINT, cyber exploitation. There are people that are doing attack and destructive activities and cyber command. And then there's a few people in various places that are doing influence operations. And to our adversaries, in this particular case, in the Ghostwriter activity, it's all one and the same, and one can support the other. So what we're seeing in this report is that a new group that FIRE has never seen before, what they're calling ANC 1151, is doing compromises, stealing credentials, and they're doing that in support of Ghostwriter operations, and some, which is this influence operation that they had identified previously to set up fake news services and fake websites promoting various influence operations. And the two are working um, hand in hand together. So we have seen the UNC 1151 folks use spear phishing emails that link to materials that the ghostwriter operators had put out. And part of the infrastructure that the UNC 1151 uh, guys use supports the ghostwriter operations. So, oh, so it, this it's is really it's like they, they having compromised one person, they put out a, a, a tweet from that person or something on their website that will guarantees that everybody will want to go there. And they say, basically, they incorporate people as they come. It's sort of like joining the Borg. You think you're just going there to be outraged, but you're actually being incorporated. Yeah, and it strikes me that this is the right way to think about conducting cyber operations. It's about what goal do you want to try to achieve and then pick the right tools, whether it's CNE, whether it's InfoOps, whether it's CNA, to achieve those goals and not draw these 
random distinctions that the U.S. has drawn of that this requires different authorities or different people have to do that and we can't collaborate. And it's just basically ma making us uh, fight with one hand tied behind our backs. This is because we've never been comfortable with information ops. We did a few of them in the 50s and early 60s, and we were bad at it, in my view. And and then we got then the CIA got in trouble for doing even that, and they've basically gotten out of the business. And I just cannot imagine anybody in the U.S. military getting good at this. And I wouldn't really want people in the military who were good at this. So it's kind yeah. of hard to do it when everything is going to leak on the front pages of the New York Times or Washington that Post too. the next yes. day. <laughs> All right, well, so let me ask, this has led me to think, because I always like to think out a little bit out of the box, why not, can we take action that would actually make it really hard or much harder for uh, Russian and Chinese nationals to get onto social media that, for example, at least in Beijing or, or all of China, is unavailable? Why should they be posting stuff on Western media if they won't allow Western media into their country. Can can we actually set up a kind of Western firewall that says, we're sick of you coming over here to, to, to do these dirty deeds, and uh, we're going to start kicking you off the internet outside of your own country? I'm not sure the Constitution allows that. Oh, sure I mean, it does. I mean, yes. they can pay people in the they can pay people in the U.S. to do this. And the Supreme Court likes any kind of paid speech these days. So, so they could do that, but under FARA, and certainly under laws that uh, would be justified under the constitutional justification for FARA, you could say, yeah, you can do that as long as you say, "I, by the way, I was paid by Russians who aren't allowed to post this stuff here themselves to post this. And I think that kind of self-limits the, uh, the the reach of your communication. I'm not sure Farah applies to uh, posting on Twitter and Facebook, but it's uh, advocating pop. It surely should. <laughs> well, so we can, ex yeah, maybe you can lobby Congress for that extension of Farah. All right. Okay. So that's, I'm just putting it out there, as they say, because I think that's, if we're looking for something that might actually have an impact, it's worth thinking about. I don't know if it's practical or not, but lots of impractical things have been done. I want to move through some of these ideas pretty quickly, but Mark, the EU says that social media has to take down uh, terrorist contact within an hour of being told about it. At least they aren't being told to find it and take it down within an hour. Now, I guess it's only when the government tells them that this is terrorist content that they have to take it down within an hour. But that law is now adopted and will go into, into effect in a year, or at least in, pretty close to a year as various European countries adopt the, the law and make it a uh, domestic law. Yeah, the shape of this has been pretty clear for about three years now. So it's not really a brand new idea. This has been kicked around from the Commission and the Council of Europe in their trialogue. So this is just a formal adoption of something that was largely understood. The, the new thing is that they say that the, it doesn't apply to takedowns targeting material that's in educational, artistic, journalistic, or academic material. But they largely brushed aside the civil rights and, and free speech concerns that have been raised against this. 
In the same way that, that in other areas, Germany has their Nets DG law, which is also has a takedown for illegal material within 24 hours. And in the European Commission's proposed Digital Services Act, they say if you get a notice of illegal activity and you don't act expeditiously to take it down, you lose your immunity under the Electronic Commerce Directive. So these takedown provisions are becoming more and more common in Europe. And well, not just in Europe. It, it, it's really interesting that the Israelis have a unit and apparently many countries have a unit that just calls up social media and says, we have found terrorist or otherwise a content that otherwise violates your rules. You should take it down. You don't have to mention our name. That's okay. Uh, and so a lot of takedowns apparently are happening at the instance of government, but without the force of law, because people are learning the, the rules. That's been done for a long time, and those are called requests under the, the new regulation. But, but this is much more explicit. I mean, once you get that order, it's not just a suggestion. It's a requirement. You have to take it down. Well, something that should be taken down, but it's not clear how we get it taken down, is the D.C. police which has been ransomwared and is being dock-storted with the publication of some very sensitive files, background investigations of individual police officers. There are probably files on snitches that are going to come out. And so if you're a snitch for the D.C. police, you really should move. And it's not at all clear what can be done to prevent the, the publication of this information. Dimitri? Well, one of the things that this highlights really is that ransomware has really become a side hassle to the main operations that these people are conducting, which is just plain uh, blatant extortion, right? It's no longer just about unlocking your data. It's about threatening the release of that data unless uh, huge ransoms have been paid. And the ransoms are going up in price. And I remember just three or four years ago, they were on the order of maybe 50 grand, 100 grand. Now in there, tens of millions. There was one recently, there was an initial request at least of over $50 million. But that was, so, a, that was to, to, because they were exposing new products from Apple. They had compromised a supplier and they had gotten some specs of new Apple products. And we know Apple's famously secretive. So it really hurts when you're the supplier who has caused Apple's plans to be publicized. So it might be worth $50 million to avoid Apple's wrath. Yeah, but going after police departments, I think, can become counterproductive because pissing off law enforcement is never a good thing. And even though this is local law enforcement, you can believe that FBI is taking notice. The Justice Department, of course, just recently launched a ransomware task force encouraging all the DOJ and FBI offices around the country to start working on cases and filing indictments. And I think that these guys are going to come to see a pretty rude awakening here. And a lot of them, you have to remember, are still traveling overseas, even though most are based in Russia. We have caught quite a few criminals um, that have decided to travel to Spain, to Thailand, and other places where we have extradition uh, treaties with. Yeah, I think that's right. The other folks who are going to get hit in the crossfire are probably Bitcoin uh, uh, wallet makers and maintainers, quite possibly uh, big suppliers of cloud services who are going to find that uh, uh, they're more heavily regulated in an effort to close off the tools that the ransomware guys are using to make their money. There's no question that cryptocurrency regulation is coming. Treasury uh, Department put out guidance about new regulations they want to have for transactions over $10,000, sort of mimicking what we have 
in the in the traditional financial sphere back in December, and I think they're going to move forward with implementing those later this year. So that is coming, and that's going to make it much more difficult for these folks to collect ransoms, which is a good thing. Okay, so continuing in the theme of boy, does technology suck these days, it turns out that the ad tech that guarantees that you'll get ads that are relevant to you is also tracking and identifying secret deployments of U.S. soldiers. The Wall Street Journal had a great article about uh, how much you could tell about special forces deployments. And it was it was kind of the second coming of the fitness tracker that uh, dis- discovered a bunch of bases in Afghanistan. What's the answer to that? You know, the answer is that uh, we no longer live in a world where anything can be kept secret, not just for us, but for our, uh, our own adversaries. It struck me about a month ago when there was this huge deployment of about 100,000 forces on the Ukrainian border by Russia, that you had all kinds of pictures on social media identifying specific units, the equipment that's relocating when they're heading down there, all without any government involvement. So it's not just a problem that we face, but everyone really that is becoming more and more difficult, if not impossible, to keep secret identities for intelligence officers or to do covert operations. And mobile devices are really at the heart of it. I mean, even when you turn those things off, you sort of pop up um, like a sore thumb because who these days turns off their phones? Yeah, exactly. Right? That in <laughs> itself uh, can be a big indication that something is up. So there, there is no really good answer for this, unfortunately. So Ron Wyden thinks he has an answer. He actually has two. And unfortunately, he seems more excited about the wrong one than the right one. The wrong one is to say, oh, the American law enforcement needs to get a warrant before they buy stuff that any, any Russian agent could buy uh, off the shelf or from uh, the supplier. That's nuts. And then he has another idea about trying to prevent foreign purchases of location data. That bill is not yet introduced he's talked about it uh, maybe he had maybe he's appealing to a different set of senators with that uh, but his notion that, that the fourth amendment is not for sale act which is the clever title he's given to his uh, dumb rule to, to to discriminate against law enforcement is the one that he's introduced he's even got some bipartisan support for it i'm not sure it's going anywhere and of course it doesn't do anything about the problem the wall street journal has identified or the problem that our adversaries know how to hack phones, they know how to compromise telecommunications providers to get right to the source of the data. So their ability to track our military or our special forces or, or intelligence um, analysts won't go away with us. Okay. Two more quick ones. Maury, there was a really interesting New York Times article that suggested that aggressive antitrust enforcement in China is turning into a lobbying battle by two or three really big Chinese internet companies uh, who are now competing not so much for consumer favor as for government favor. And antitrust law is going to be used as a, another competitive tool uh, as, they, as they try to lobby their way to dominance. I, I thought that was exactly right and it reinforces one of one of the baker's laws that i've been unable to get into the law books which is that government is the same everywhere and the ccp in china and the way they relate to big corporate interests is surprisingly similar to the way big companies relate to government in the us or europe i don't know 
Other than that, whether there's something about this internet antitrust push to observe, but what do you think? Well, I think you've got it right. I mean, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft have a lot of power here, but you go to China and you can't get anything done. You can't pay for anything if you don't have an Alipay or a Weixin WeChat account. They've got a lot of power. And Jack Ma speaking up in advance of the Alipay listing in Hong Kong seems to have been a lightning rod for the government to take more aggressive enforcement action. Ponyma at Tencent is a little bit more compliant, but people aren't sure about that either. And I agree with you. I think the Chinese government sees these companies becoming powerful and and competition enforcement is another tool that they're using. Yeah, I, I remember it was like five or six or maybe even 10 years ago that the government announced kind of overnight that the CEOs of all the big telecoms were going to be moved over one spot. It was like musical chairs just to show everybody at those companies that they could do it anytime they wanted. And I suspect this is much the same as that at the end of the day, everybody has to recognize that the CCP is in control and uh, everybody else is operating at their sufferance. All right, last topic, and I don't know what to make of this. There's been a lot of talk about cybersecurity maturity model. It's basically DOD saying, if you do business with us, you've got to have some basic cybersecurity. And that's a regulatory regime they've been trying to impose for years now. And it's been delayed again. I, I sort of joked it was the Biden administration saving us from excessive regulation from the Trump era. But I, I think it's more they just don't know how to make it all work. Dimitri, is this maturity model in deep trouble or is this just teething pains? It's teething pains, unfortunately. The issue is that they can't find enough certified contractors that will do the audits for the department of all the organizations that would be subject to it. So they have to delay it yet again uh, and looks like by a fairly long period. That I view as actually a good thing. If this thing goes away, we will not be any less safer. Compliance is the death of security and this is just a massive compliance burden on organizations that will actually prevent them from investing in the right things that would make their networks more resilient and uh, and hardened against these types of threats. So uh, unfortunately, DOD has taken exactly the wrong approach to, to security here. And the fact that it's getting delayed uh, can give us maybe a tiny bit of hope that maybe at some point they'll jettison this whole thing in favor of real security protocols. Uh, real security protocols might be, they're clearly better than compliance, but maybe compliance is better than nothing. If you were a DOD, what would you do about uh, all those contractors? I would actually look for third-party contractors that can do penetration exercises, red team exercises against those networks to actually build resilience, practical resilience to defend those networks against realistic threats that they may face. I would make sure that everyone has hunting services that can be either provided by DOD or that they hire on their own to seek out adversaries on their networks. Those are the types of things that would actually make those networks much more resilient to penetration, not you know, filling out 10,000 page documents. That, that makes no one safer. Okay, so that kind of very qualified, maybe we could do this if we did it right, is the best you're going to get out of our downer of an episode. Uh, so I uh, thanks, Dimitri. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Maury. So let's 
turn to our interview, which this week is with Kevin Roos, who's the technology columnist for the New York Times and the author of Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Uh, Kevin, I have said in the introduction that I thought this was a very millennial book, and that was not meant as an insult. Are you a millennial? I am, yeah. I'm yeah. I 33, so I guess that makes me sort of uh, on the, in the right in the middle of millennials. Well, uh, congratulations, because this is I, what I, the reason I said that is this is a book for somebody who expects to be living with artificial intelligence and automation of the third wave variety for the rest of his career. You're building a career recognizing that you're going to struggle with this. And you are both cynical about the enthusiasm for automation that people who are old enough to have stock in it are celebrating. And at the same time, have a kind of individualistic, I can market and self-brand my way out of this this mess advice to, to others who are in your spot. Is that fair? Well, I think the book is really sort of in two parts. I mean, as you said, the first part is sort of diagnosis. Like what is actually happening with AI and automation? I think we, we talk a lot about AI and automation in the future tense as something that's going to happen, but all of us deal every day with dozens of AIs in our phones, in our apps that we use, in our, you know, series and Netflix algorithms and everything like that. And these AIs already shape our lives in sometimes invisible and sometimes very visible ways. And so part of the, my what I was trying to do was say, like, what is actually happening out there? What kinds of jobs are being changed and and possibly destroyed by AI and automation? What kinds of new opportunities is it giving us? And then the second half is the sort of prescription. It's the, what do I do about this part? Because that was the part that I feel like was missing from a lot of the conversations about AI and automation. You know, you start talking about this as a problem and then people immediately start going to universal basic income or to, you know, robot taxes, this, this sort of like macro fixes when really there's a, a much more urgent priority for individuals trying to navigate this new world. And as it will probably get a chance to talk about that, but I think that that is an insulting solution for people who lose their jobs to uh, automation. It's like it's like saying, well, I'm going to put a 20 in your hat when you sit on the corner. Uh, it, 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 people want meaning in their life, and most of them want meaning from the jobs they do. And uh, saying, well, we gave you the money so you didn't because we couldn't give you a job uh, is, is going to produce a deeply disaffected body politic but i let's start with let's start with the the reasons why you're more worried than most people about this because i it, lots of people will say come on I, haven't we seen this movie before over and over again people were throwing shoes into cotton looms say in the 18th century and because jobs were never coming back uh, and yet we've got more jobs than ever in human history why doesn't that satisfy you from the point of view of our future well i w that was my starting position going in was that all the people raising the alarm about ai and automation were just a historical you know worry warts that were predicting the sky was going to fall and that if you actually looked at the evidence, that's not what actually happens. And so I went back and looked at the evidence and it turns out, so there, I guess there are two ways to answer this question. One is there is some evidence that this time is different. And there are some economists in particular, Darren Asimoglu and Pascal Restrepo, who have done some pioneering work about the influence of automation on jobs within heavily automated industries. And they've found that for most of the 20th century, 
the optimistic take that you just outlined was essentially right. New jobs were being created by automation faster than old jobs were being displaced. But that has actually shifted in recent years, according to their work. And so now we have in industries that are automating tasks are disappearing to automation faster than new jobs are being created. So let's bracket that for a second and say, okay, even if that is not true, even if there will ultimately be more jobs created by automation than are destroyed, should we be worried about it anyway? And the answer to that is is yes, because as you mentioned, people have been protesting new technologies disrupting work for hundreds of years since the Luddites, but they were not wrong. <laughs> like after the Industrial Revolution, it took about 50 years for workers' wages to catch up to corporate profits. And in the meantime, there was child labor, there was these disgusting, you know, unsafe factories, there was all kinds of labor exploitation. So for the people actually living through the Industrial Revolution, they didn't, a lot of them didn't actually experience this as a positive change in their lives. In fact, they experienced it very negatively. And, and in the long run, the aggregate, maybe we have better lives than our great grandparents did, but our great grandparents didn't necessarily think all this new technology was so great. And, you know, you could make a pretty good argument that the social dislocation from all of this produced Marx and produced uh, Stalinism and uh, fascism and the abattoir that was the 20th century. So to say, hey, after we get through with our touchy-feely version of communism and fascism, things will be okay. You'll have a job. It's not very comforting. Right. And, and especially on the time scale that we've seen it happen before. I mean, if it takes 50 years for wages to catch up to profits and GDP, that means that most of the people who are benefiting from this technology are actually going to be retired or, or dead by the time that they see the fruits of those innovations. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. I, I think that's right. It's going to be a rocky ride at best, and we ought to be thinking more about what it means. You had some kind of chilling discussions in here about just how enthusiastic CEOs are about automation in ways that make it sound as though, you know, there are Fortune 500 companies that are hoping that they will be able to run their companies with 500 people. Or fewer. I mean, really, that is the the discussion that I discovered. I went to um, a bunch of different conferences and talked to you know CEOs, and on the record, they'll tell you, you know, we're using automation to free our workers from mundane and boring tasks. And then off the record, they'll tell you, yeah, we're trying to get rid of them. That's not, that's a, like we're trying to take out costs here because that's their that's what they see their job as being. And so automation is you know companies are ready to do as much as they can to lower the, the labor costs that they have to pay. So the other thing that I thought was interesting in this very depressing section of the book was your discussion of how everybody thinks that this is really going to suck for everybody but them and that their jobs are robot proof. Do you want to uh, explain where some of those illusions come from? Yeah, that that's fascinating. I mean, the disparity when you survey people about whether they think automation and AI are going to destroy jobs, they say yes, absolutely. And then when you ask them whether their own job is susceptible, most of them say absolutely not. And this is, you know, this is a historical trend. This is not new. We are sort of cognitively predisposed to think that we are special <laughs> and that our jobs could never be done by a machine. And so that's just like 
the evidence is just overwhelming that you know most jobs that we think are robot proof are not actually robot proof given enough time and technology most jobs can be at least mostly automated and so i think that's just we need to sort of get over our own hubris about that and i've tried to do that you know to various extents with this book is just to say actually if you look at the research it's not the blue collar, you know, manufacturing and retail jobs that are most at risk from those AI jobs are mostly gone anyway. Exactly. Yeah, those jobs have been you know, disappearing for decades. And um, where all the the sort of excess in the system is, at least if you're a person looking to cut costs by automating is in white collar workplaces. Brookings Institution and Stanford had some interesting research a couple of years ago showing that actually the, the most susceptible people to being displaced by AI are people working in sort of six figure, you know, college educated fields um, in, in tech and business, um, people doing sales forecasting, people doing various types of analysis and, and data work. It's not, it's not truck drivers and, and factory workers. So you write a lot, especially a lot of the human services side of this. People think, well, they, they, they can't replace me. I wonder if some of the AI bias claims that we see about algorithms that make predictions about whether people are going to be recidivists or that determine whether there's fraud in various welfare programs, whether the resistance to that, oh, that's all just a bunch, there's a lot of racism in that, uh, is people who are afraid they're going to lose their jobs to those algorithms, uh, as opposed to people who are, I mean, I'm sure they're worried about the bias, but what makes it real personal is they look around and they say, wow, there were more people making these decisions before we got these uh, algorithms uh, working on the problem. That, that could be some of the resistance. I mean, I'm sure there are judges who want to keep their jobs and don't want an algorithm to be, you know, deciding sentences and guilt or innocence. But I think there are, I mean, there are high stakes decisions that we really shouldn't outsource to machines. And even the people I talk to who are, you know, working in the field of AI, who are spending all day, you know, trying to tune algorithms to make better predictions, say that, you know, there are just certain things we shouldn't let machines do, like decide on, you know, criminal guilt or innocence. You um, make the, you at one point make the argument and say, it's okay to outsource these things to the algorithms if it's a job you'd outsource to a bunch of really smart chimps. Exactly. It's, the AI can do a lot of the heavy lifting around things like predictive analytics. And, you know, say we're talking about something like healthcare, you know, a machine might be doing some of the diagnostic work, but the doctor is really still going to be the person you want to talk to when you have, you know, you want to get bad news from a human, not a machine. You want to talk about prognosis. You want to talk about your options. There are various things that I think are going to be easy for tech companies to automate inside these jobs. And there are various other things I think will be much harder. But radiologists who are certainly six figure earners, I've just been hammered by the studies that suggest that uh, really AI is better at finding tumors than they are. Exactly. And if you're a diagnostic radiologist and all you do is, you know, read scans in a lab, like your job is not long for this world. And so I think that's what we see happening in medicine is medical students are actually shifting away from diagnostic radiology and toward more sort of future-proof types of medicine, like family medicine or oncology, you know, things that are that involve sort of like more than just sitting in a lab reading scans all day. And I think that's what's happening in sort of in slow motion in lots of industries is people are realizing, oh, this part of my job can be done by a machine. I should move to other parts. 
The other thing that I thought was really interesting, because it's a very subtle and not very sexy form of roboticizing the middle class, is what you described, or at least I read into your description as becoming a human API. You are the interface between a set of data that comes in from one source, and you process it in your head or, you know, just with control C and move it to another process with control V or maybe some more thoughtful act and start another automatic process going. And you're there because they haven't quite figured out an algorithm will, that will move that data from, you know, SAP to Microsoft Windows, but it's going to happen. Yeah. The these jobs used to be in the 80s, these jobs were called swivel, where you just basically be taking stuff from one spreadsheet and plugging it into a different spreadsheet. And there's still a lot of people employed in jobs that basically work that way. And I'm not just talking about people, you know, in accounting departments. I mean, some journalists are, you know, their job is basically to take something that, you know, is trending or is happening, you know, just happened, strip out all the important data points, arrange it into a story and, and publish it in a way that will, you know, make it friendly to Google and Facebook's ranking algorithms. And so that is a kind of sort of API-esque job too. And that's one that can be automated. So I, I don't think we should make the mistake of thinking that, you know, this is somebody else's problem. Lawyers, journalists, doctors, this is potentially happening in, in a lot of industries simultaneously. Yeah, uh, they say, well, we're going to make the human work less boring. And what they mean is we're going to take out the boring parts and insert the, the, the parts that leave you desperately afraid because one mistake is a disaster when everything is high stakes. And if you've taken out all the low stakes stuff because the machine or the chimps can do it, your employees are constantly at risk of making a mistake that will end their career. So it's a tough one. All right, I'm, that's enough doom and gloom. This was a really depressing episode already before we got you on. And now uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, they, when preachers in New England in the 16th and 17th century uh, gave speeches, they always started out with the, the, pit of damnation and everybody had to look into the pit and realize that they were doomed but at the end you got an explanation of how to achieve salvation that's how the second half of your book goes i won't call it salvation but it charts some very practical advice for things you need to do if you've looked at your job and said yeah this is too close to swivelware for comfort so what did you do? Let's start with what you did to avoid becoming locked into writing financial reports that, uh, you know, a, a GPT two or three could probably write on its own. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, sinners in the hands of an angry God impression. <laughs> no, I will deliver us. No, I'm. So what I did, because I used to do these sort of formulaic corporate earnings stories that are now being automated, that was my first job in journalism. And as I sort of realized that this was happening, that I could, you know, large parts of my day could be automated, I started coming up with a strategy. And then for me, that strategy involved sort of 
personalizing my reporting. So putting myself in stories, having, you know, going on adventures, doing things, you know, that weren't just sort of rote recitation of information, trying to be more entertaining and, and put more personality and, and humanizing details into my stories, branching out into other forms of media like podcasts and TV shows. That's been part of what I've tried to do to sort of become less fungible or, or less automatable. And I think that's what a lot of people in a lot of industries are doing. And that's the great news is that you actually don't have to learn how to code or, you know, learn how to use GPT-3 to be successful in this new automated world. You just have to be distinctly human. Like you, you just have to do the stuff that is that machines can't do, which turns out to be surprisingly hard, but it doesn't require going back to school or learning any specialized set of, of tools. So, you know, I would boil that down to don't do boring crap in your job. If, if your job involves a lot of boring crap, it's not just boring for you, it's boring for your audience and it's going to get replaced. So the more you can turn it into something that is a challenge to you, it's probably not something a machine can do. Right. And the more, you, you know, a lot of people right now are employed in industries where the goal is to create products or services, to do work, to fabricate things, to perform tasks. And those jobs are susceptible to automation. What's much less susceptible is producing experiences for people. Now, you know, that sounds like a very millennial idea. And, and we've all read the stories about how millennials don't want to just, you know, go see the Eiffel Tower. They want to, you know, they want to have an authentic uh, Parisian experience. But it really is true. Uh, one rubric I use with people is if your job has sort of an invisible if your job title, if you could add an invisible sort of slash therapist to the end of your job title, it's probably pretty safe. If you are a lawyer slash therapist, your job is much safer than someone who just writes briefs all day. If you are a doctor slash therapist or a journalist slash therapist. I'm going to be able to continue for the, you know, as long as I like, which may not be that long, but still, yeah, you're right. I, I agree more and more of the work I do, as it turns out that more and more people who can afford to hire a big law firm are individuals with a lot of money, you end up, uh, it's all therapy. Uh, it, it's all, how does this make this person feel? If it makes them feel better, they will gladly pay for it. And if it doesn't, then sooner or later, they're going to say, why am I paying for this? What do I, can't, uh, can't we get, put a couple hundred million dollars into replacing this aspect of the um, profession I'm interacting with? Right. They're not paying lawyers for, you know, their amazing contract review skills. <laughs> they're paying them because they're humans who can solve problems for them and make them feel better and, and represent them in ways that, you know, are, are sort of go beyond just sort of technical sophistication. And this is happening in every industry. We are outsourcing the stuff that is sort of skill-based and, and production-based to machines, which leaves us with the stuff that is about making people feel things. I'm going to tell you a story about Scotty Reston. Maybe you've heard it. He was the famous uh, Washington bureau chief for the New York Times in the 60s and maybe even the 70s. And he had an, an intern, so the story goes, who was spending the summer bringing him coffee and at the end of the summer mustered the the nerve to say, Mr. Reston, Mr. Reston, I, I want to be a reporter too. What advice do you have for me? And uh, Reston, of course, this was the era when everybody sucked on pipes, so he sucked on his pipe. He said, kid, sell every piece three times. 
And uh, it, it, the notion was you should always ask when you're doing a story, what else can I do to repurpose this so that it has a new audience and advances my personal brand? Uh, and that sounds like the kind of advice you're giving people. Yeah, although it goes beyond sort of personal branding. I think that is a big piece of it. I think we're, you know, the more you have your own you know, image and reputation, the harder it is for an employer to interchange you with a machine or another human for that matter. But I, I think it's also about just being better at the parts of our jobs that involve sort of producing experiences for people, empathy, collaboration. It involves, it's, it's about figuring out which parts of our jobs are the least automatable and, and doing as much of those as possible. And whether that involves personal branding or just sort of being the best insurance salesman at your firm at connecting with clients, at being the, the insurance salesman that all your clients want to deal with because they love you, because, you know, send them Christmas cards, because, you know, congratulate them on their kid. I mean, it's just, it's the sort of subtle human details that are going to matter in the economy, you know, that we're moving into. Yeah, Scott Adams from Dilbert had a pretty good book about that, sort of similar to this, in which he said, I'm obviously not the best artist at work today, and I'm not that funny. And what I know about the office, there are millions of people who know, but I am the best combination of artist, humorist, and office observer uh, at work on the comic page. And that's enough. Uh, it's a kind of combination of skills that I can, I can spend a fairly long time exploiting. Absolutely. And I think that's the world we're moving into. One of the things I talk about in the book is the idea um, that there are certain traits that are harder to automate. And one of them is what I call scarce work, which is these sort of rare combinations of skills. If you're a zoologist and a mathematician, you're going to have opportunities that are, are not available to people who only specialize in one of those things. If you are a, a programmer, it's not enough just to be a good programmer. You, you have to be able to combine that with some other discipline because those skills are, are, are just as automatable as the rest. So I, I think this approach to sort of finding hybrid job descriptions, people with sort of multiple overlapping skill sets is a really good one. Yeah. So all those people who, when uh, they say they're an actor, are asked what restaurant they 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 were they had hit on a strategy. Maybe not every combination of skills is going to guarantee a, a success, but I, I, as a way of thinking about your career, saying what two or three things do I have that don't feel like day jobs, but could be supplements to my day job and make it more a more successful thing does make sense. Right. And and just to sort of give a brief example of this, I mean, one example I talk about in the book is my accountant, the guy who does my taxes. His name is Russ Garofalo. He's a great guy, very good at taxes, but that's not why I hire him. He's a former stand-up comedian, and he hires other funny, personable tax preparers. And he focuses on a type of tax preparation that is not sort of automatable that, you know, his clients are have their taxes are too complicated for TurboTax. And so he's been able to stay alive in an industry that has been decimated by software based tax preparation tools. And it's not because he's the best tax preparer necessarily, although he's quite good. It's because he has this other skill set of relating to people, of making them laugh, of turning taxes from a chore into an entertaining experience. And that's what's made him able to survive. 
All right. I, that, is, that is good advice because anybody who can make doing your taxes entertaining, I, really, there should be more of them. Uh, he should be ahead of the IRS and then we could, I could get the jokes right in the tax forms. So, uh, all right. I, I, we're gonna, coming to the end, but it's a rich book, rich in advice, rich in personal take on the advice, which is kind of fun. Uh, and what, what point that's in the book that we haven't covered, should we cover? So this is kind of the, your last opportunity to give advice to the mostly lawyers or aspiring lawyers uh, or government officials who listen to this podcast. Well, I think one thing for lawyers and government officials to really think about is not so much in your own work. I'm sure all your listeners are very future-proof and none of their jobs could ever be automated. But I, I think the the sort of solutions that we arrive at for how to sort of regulate and oversee this technology are really important. I'm not a fan of banning things outright or sort of imposing draconian regulations on things, but we do need guardrails. And so I hope that people who are in law, who are in government, are thinking about what those guardrails should be, are, are actively looking at that, because this is not something we have 10 years to think about or 20 years. This is something that's happening all around us every day right now. And so even though it looks like like the economy is doing great and people are, you know, getting paid more and their stimulus checks are arriving. There is a seismic change happening under the surface. And I, I hope that people are paying attention to that. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been, we've had 30 or 40 years of this uh, in which you can make a lot of money, but you have no job security. And I think we all live in that world. I used to say to people who, when they took jobs in corporate counsel departments, I said, you know, one of the nice things about working in in-house in a general counsel's office is the illusion of security is sub more substantial, but it is an illusion and we're all adjusting to that. And it, it, once the bottom falls out, it's really hard to get back. So I think people are understandably worried about uh, this, even when they're making a lot of money and things are going well, and it isn't clear how they're going to uh, be earning a living 10 years from now. So everybody needs to think about this. And this book, Future Proof, at nine rules for humans in the age of automation is a, it's a good place to start it's kind of both uh, social policy and self-help uh, and if you can't see where your career will be in 25 years or don't uh, think you will still be in the workforce in 25 years you probably need to read kevin russ's book so kevin it's been a pleasure to have you on thanks also to mark dimitri and maury for joining us thanks also to weissman sound design for our music this has been episode 360 of the cyber law podcast brought to you by steptoe and johnson mm -hmm.